Welcome to What You Didn't Expect in Fertility, Pregnancy, and Birth. How we think and feel about this enormous transition often lives in the gap between what we expected and what we actually experienced. This gap exists in part because of how we tend to talk about and portray these events on all kinds of media. In a one-dimensional way, everything was amazing. But it's more often the case that there are beautiful things that happen and, at the same time, really challenging things that happen. This show shares true experiences, both the easy parts and the difficult parts, and how we manage what we didn't expect. The intense things that can happen in the course of this transition can impact how you see yourself, how you see your partner, and how you parent. The better we understand what happened to us, the better we can manage all the things that follow. I'm your host, Paulette Kamenica. I'm a writer and an economist and a mother of two girls. And I met many, many challenges in this process, none of which I expected. This week, we have the end of my conversation with Andrea. She talks about how that first birth unbolded, dealing with the unexpected C-section and all the pain and fear that it brought, the difficulties of that first postpartum. And she also shares the things she did to make her second experience of birth an empowered one. Dr. Amuta Nakaga shares her advice for how to manage challenging birth settings and talks about the current state of affairs for doula coverage across the country. We pick up where we left off last week. Andrea and her husband have resigned themselves to the C-section and she's about to deliver the baby. And I finally, I just was like, you know what? The main thing is that my son gets here alive. So I just kind of sucked it up and, you know, went along with it. And so they finally took me in to do the C-section and because the epidural wasn't placed properly, I was not fully numbed for the surgery. And so I could literally feel them cutting into my skin and I was screaming and telling them that, and they're like, no, you're just feeling pressure. And it's like, I'm the one that has someone cutting into me yeah. and you're telling me what I'm feeling. Yeah. And I just remember praying, Lord, please don't let me die because it was so painful. Although there was some numbing, it wasn't fully what it should have been because you should literally feel nothing during that procedure. And I felt them cutting my skin. And I remember finally they got my son out. And they showed him to me and they asked me if I wanted to hold him. And I was like, no, I don't feel like myself. I'm scared I would drop him. So I couldn't even hold my son during those first moments because I just didn't feel like I was so like groggy and just so much going on. And so after I saw my son, I ended up blacking out. I think it was just so much from the pain and everything And I finally came to a little while later as they were closing me up and all of that. And even, you know, once they finished everything up and they removed me to the recovery room, even then I still just did not feel comfortable holding my son because I was just so terrified of dropping him because I was shaking and I still felt a lot of the anesthesia in my body and I just wasn't fully present, fully alert and everything. And it was just, it wasn't the way I imagined, especially becoming a first time mom. It was so traumatic, so overwhelming, and it wasn't a joyful experience at all. 
Good Lord. I mean, it sounds traumatic and really hard to manage. And I, I can't imagine you'd want to hold him since you're trying to hold yourself together after all of that. I took this traumatic event to Dr. Amuta Anakagara, who's an associate professor in the Department of Public Health and Community Medicine at Tufts University. She's trying to make birth safer and better for everyone. Andrea's induction is not progressing, which unfortunately leads to a traumatic C-section. How would you manage this situation? It's very traumatic. And this is why I really love, adore, and I'm, and I'm obsessed with doulas. I think doulas are a tremendous bridge between clinicians and patients. Doulas are sometimes seen as in the way. If clinicians are being honest with themselves, they see doulas a little bit adversarially. They see them as like, I mean, even my own delivery would say, oh, can you go sit in a corner? No, she can't. She's yeah. a trained health professional, a birth worker who is here to make sure that I am comfortable and I'm able to labor the way that I would like to. And so the, the, the field of medicine and frankly, the, the way that we prioritize the birthing experience in this country is really driven more about reimbursement and how many procedures and how many tests can I run and how can we code things to get the maximum possible return um, and less about the, exp the experience we're cultivating for people, less about the environment that we are, you know, doing this really hard thing in, right? Like labor is so beautiful and so chaotic and it's a lot of hurry up and wait. And then it's just all at the same time. It's beautiful. If we focused more on the human, the humanity of labor and delivery. I think we as a country, one, would have better outcomes and two, would be in a position where we're able to really appreciate what it is that birthing people from all backgrounds bring to the table. People know their bodies. People know what they want. They know what they're able to prioritize. If that's not listened to, if people feel like they're not going to be heard in that space, that's devastating. And we yeah. really have missed the mark with that particular birth. And the problem with missing the mark is that people then don't come back or they're petrified for the next birth or they tell their friends and family. And then we miss opportunities as a discipline to really support people. The word gets out, oh my gosh, that hospital or that provider is just awful. And I had a terrible experience and I, I'll never go there again. Right. And so this birth that has been, that could have been really, really beautiful has now been marred by this really traumatic experience. And it makes people think twice, do I want another pregnancy? Do I want another birth? What happens now, right? And so it's just, it's awful. It's really, really unnecessary. And I think every time I give these types of talks, I'm just like, can we just treat people like human beings? If we treated yeah. people like our brothers and sisters or like people in our family, right? I think we would be in a place where we would be a lot better off. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I and your suggestion of a doula is genius. I feel uncomfortable telling people to bring a buddy because we can't otherwise protect you. You have to bring a buddy. We don't have the luxury of going into birthing spaces in general where we're not able to really have that level of buffering, that level of protection. Like we have to go into these spaces with our eyes open, our head on a swivel, and really being clear about what we need. So it's just, you know, <laughs> can't take your eyes off the prize. Doulas are, are obviously a really great solution to that. But my sense is that the payment for doulas differs by state. Not every state covers it with insurance. Is that 
right? That's correct. Do you know how commonly it is covered? Is it 30 states? Mm -hmm. Is it? That's a good question. I don't know because things are changing so fast. I'll be honest with you. It's where where <laughs> the field of maternal health, we're building the plane as we're flying it, right? We're like, oh, New Jersey's doing this. Well, we got to hurry up and do that. So the data is changing. I mean, what I will say is that it's it's becoming less attractive to not be reimbursing up to 12 months, right? Now you look a little crazy if your state is still behind the times. So this has been like a public shaming, if you will, to kind of move things along. But overall, we're seeing tremendous growth in this. And it's really quite explosive. The number of states that in the past year, six months, have really made these leaps and leaps about. Uh, thank God your husband was there. Yeah. And did he get to hold the baby right when he came out? Yes, he did. Okay, yeah. Good. Yeah, they actually had him go with the baby so to weigh him and check him, make sure everything was fine and all of that. So he got to be there for all of it. And so now you're in recovery. And do you feel more normal as the anesthesia wears off? Yeah, after probably about an hour or so, I finally felt more like myself and was finally ready to hold my son and everything. But it was hard because I didn't feel quite like myself that delayed me breastfeeding him. So our breastfeeding journey, it just started off badly. But yeah, I finally came to was able to hold him and everything like that. And it honestly, just seeing his beautiful face, it it was all worth it. Like, yes, I would have loved to have a different experience, but he was there, he was healthy, and that's all that mattered to me. That's amazing. And they keep you for three days, I'm assuming? They actually released us early because, again, with COVID. So they only oh. kept us two days and they let us go. That seems fast. How do you feel leaving the hospital? I remember after my first C-section when they said, oh, you'll have to use the bathroom before you leave. And I was like, no, I don't do that anymore. I was so afraid the staples would come out or I don't know. It just. Yeah, I was pretty nervous just because I was still in a lot of pain and they tell you to be mindful of all these different things because like you said, you don't want the staples to come out. You don't want to get infection, yeah. all these things. So I did not feel fully prepared, but I wanted to get out of the hospital. And I think because it was the height of COVID. We really didn't know what was going on with it, how you can actually get it, yep. spread it, all of that. And so I just wanted to get my baby out of there because yeah. I felt like a hospital is a breeding ground for COVID. And so when they were like, oh yeah, we'll release you. I'm like, okay, yes, let's get out of here. You're reminding me that we wash the groceries and bake the mail, right? I remember yes. those early days when you just had no idea how it was transmitted. And yes. that is really scary. So I guess that in some ways it's a boon to get out of there because it's not comforting to stay there. So what does postpartum look like? It was definitely challenging just because they tell you the only thing you can lift is the baby. Yeah. But even in that, the sitting up and down in the bed, you know, getting out the bed to go to the bathroom, it was so painful. Yeah. So it was, it was rough because I, 
I hadn't prepared for a C-section recovery. Of course. Everything I had at home was for a vaginal birth recovery. So I didn't have everything I needed. I was researching, okay, what do I actually need to make this recovery go as smoothly as possible and whatnot. So I felt behind on things. I didn't even have the right underwear for a C-section. So it was just really overwhelming trying to figure out, figure it all out. But thankfully, a really close friend of mine, she had had a C-section and I was able to reach out to her to find out what did you use as part of your recovery? What helped you and everything? So that was really nice to have her to lean on. Yeah, that is nice. And I'm assuming your mom can't move in with you because of COVID or how does that all work? Actually, we were renting a place with her at the time. So I had her there for support. So that was really helpful. Okay, good. And okay. And so are you, you're feeling more yourself or like, does the trauma follow you home or how does that all work? It did. I dealt a lot with postpartum depression and anxiety. So I ended up started seeing a therapist who specialized working with postpartum moms. I knew immediately, like, okay, I'm not myself. I'm not feeling okay. I need help. And so I got that help. Uh, that's awesome because most people I talk to, first of all, it takes them months if they realize it at all, or they don't realize it till they have another baby to see how different it is. So that's great that you could evaluate things don't seem right and I need help. And I'm assuming the therapy was helpful. Yes. But I'm guessing for the second child, you switched providers. Oh, I did things completely differently. So after I had my son, me and my husband knew we wanted to have more kids. And so I started researching natural birth options, home birth options, doulas, midwives. I dove into that entire world. And so when we found out probably like a year and a half later that I was pregnant with our daughter, I already knew what I wanted to do. One of my close friends, she was a doula and I told her, I want you to be my doula. And she started helping me research options. So whether I wanted to give birth at a birth center or do a home birth, And originally I was going to go with the birth center option. And then she was like, have you thought about doing a home birth? And I was so against it at first, but she was like, just research it. And she even sent me some YouTube videos of home births just to kind of see how it goes and everything. And I loved it. I loved how these women were birthing in the comfort of their home, how they had their family around them. Because again, we were still in the middle of COVID. So I wasn't going to be able to have my mom there. I wasn't going to be able to have that support I needed. And now we had our son too. And I wanted him to be a part of this experience. And so I ended up finding a midwife who I absolutely loved and decided to work with her. That's awesome. And also, so now we're thinking you're going to do a VBAC mm-hmm. and we're thinking lupus is not an issue for the delivery or the birth or the pregnancy. No. So one of the things that my midwife did, she did have me initially still see my primary doctor, 
just because she was like, have them run the test just to make sure everything is good with the lupus. And she was able to access my records too and see the test results and everything. And she had a team of midwives that she was able to lean on to get their input on whether or not to work with me and whether or not I could have a successful VBAC. So she did her due diligence. I did my part too, especially just making sure I was keeping my stress down eating properly and different things like that. And it was a completely different experience. Everything from the appointments with the midwife compared to a regular doctor, completely different, especially the educational piece that you get from the midwives. They tell you why you shouldn't be doing certain things. Doctors just tell you, don't do this, don't eat that. And so it was such an amazing way to redeem the traumatic experience that I had with my son. That's super interesting. Overall, I was pretty healthy. I didn't have any issues. So I wasn't worried about any complications. Okay. I mean, they do evaluate your success for it. So they look at a lot of things and throughout working with the midwife. So I had to have my iron at a certain level. There were certain things that I had to do in order to even be considered for the VBAC. Okay. So I had to do my part. It wasn't just like, oh yeah, you're clear to go. It's like, no, they checked certain things throughout the entire pregnancy and even leading up to the actual delivery. And at any point they could make that decision to say, no, you know, I don't feel like this is a safe option for you. You need to go to the hospital. Yeah. I know they have a prediction tool to figure Mm -hmm. out whether you're a good candidate or not. So that sounds like that's what they used for you so that you had some confidence about that. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to, before we get to the home birth, how's the second pregnancy? Honestly, at times I would forget I was even pregnant. I still remember my period was late and I was just in my mind. I was like, there's no way I can be pregnant. It was so hard to get pregnant last time. And my husband was like, you need to just take a test because you ignoring it is not going to make it go away. And so I took the test and it came back positive. It was overall a very enjoyable pregnancy. I had no anxiety, no fears or anything like that. It was just rough with, I had really bad morning sickness with my daughter and then dealing with that and caring for a toddler because my son was one at the time. It was rough. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but Overall, it was a very enjoyable pregnancy, especially being able to work alongside midwives who truly cared about me, cared about my baby. They even bonded with my son because they knew that he was going to be present for the birth and everything. And it just overall, it was a completely different experience. That sounds awesome. And it's already sounding like a much less stressful pregnancy because we're not worried about miscarriage because you've just done it successfully and it's just more chill. Do you go for appointments in a birthing center or the midwife comes to your house? So I went for appointments at, they rented out the space. So I would go to them, but then towards the tail end of my pregnancy, they were coming into the home to do the appointments. Yeah. Okay. And so what do you have to do to prepare for a home birth? 
So I wanted to do a water birth. So we had to get the birth pool. We had to have lots of towels, disinfecting products. They have a whole birth kit that you have to buy. So the nice thing is that they have a list and they have links to everything. So you don't have to go and research it yourself. But yeah, you just had to get the birth pool, lots of towels, anything that pretty much I wanted to help me be comfortable, really thinking about how I wanted my space set up. So I wanted it to be a very calming and peaceful environment. So we got the fairy lights, we had the diffuser. So that way the lavender scents could be going throughout the home and stuff. So it was more so just me creating the vision that I wanted for my birth. Okay, this is getting exciting. So yeah. take us to the day. How do you know today's the day and what does it look like? So the week leading up to me having my daughter, I had been having contractions on and off and they would be very, very intense and then they would stop. So my midwife was getting a little worried because she's like, well, it sounds like you are in labor, but for whatever reason, your daughter is not engaging with your pelvis. So that way she can go ahead and come on out. So finally, the day of the contractions, no matter what I would do, drink water, lay on my side, nothing would help. They were just, they were not stopping. So I, I called my midwife and I was like, I think this might be it. So they finally came out, they checked and I was about three centimeters dilated. And they were like, yeah, this is the real thing. So at the time, me and my husband had decided that, you know what, my son was too young. We didn't want to traumatize him or anything. Yeah. So I called my mom. She came and got my son and everything. And I called my doula. She came and we started getting everything ready. They were trying to keep me calm, keep me hydrated, trying to have me rest as much as I could, you know, especially in between the waves of the contractions. They had me eating a lot, which was very overwhelming because when you're in the middle of active labor, you do not want to eat. So, but they were on it and they were constantly checking me, checking the baby, making sure our heart rates were good and all of that. And pretty much I just moved throughout the house laboring. My doula and her assistant, they were helping a lot with doing a lot of the counter pressure and showing my husband too how to do it and everything. And finally, my water broke, which was a joyous occasion. I was actually laying down and I was like, I don't know if I peed in myself or if my water broke. And so the midwife checked and she was like, yes, your water broke. And at that point I had reached eight centimeters dilation. I was like, okay, we're almost there. And then all of a sudden I stopped progressing. And my midwife got really concerned and she was like, I don't know if it's that your daughter might be tethered or caught up in the umbilical cord or if there's something else going on. But she's like, you guys have been working really hard for over 24 hours now and you're no longer progressing. And she's like, actually, you're starting to go backwards. And she's like, I don't feel comfortable. This doesn't feel safe anymore. So I want you to go to the hospital. 
And although that wasn't what I wanted to hear, I was okay with it because I tried for that. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. I was going to say, I mean, you got to eight centimeters by yourself walking around the house, putting up fairy lights. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So I was really proud in that I got to have the experience that I wanted. And so, you know, we got everything ready. They had made sure that we had prepared an overnight bag just in case things changed and we needed to go to the hospital. So we had all of that ready. And at that point, I was just screaming for pain meds because the contractions were so intense and they were coming back to back to back. They were not stopping because they were trying to get this baby yeah, out yeah, of me. Yeah. So my husband, he rushed me to the hospital. The midwife. Are you, do you followed, live far away or no? No, we were like about 15 minutes away. So okay. thankfully we weren't far away. And then the midwife, she followed in her car because thankfully at this point, they started allowing to support people in the at the hospital. So I was really grateful for that. So I had my my midwife there, I had my husband there. And it was so nice having the midwife in that she was able to answer all of the doctor's questions because they wanted to know what time did my water break? What time did I start? Did I move into active labor? All these different things that I could not answer for them. I was just screaming, give me the epidural now, please. (laughs) So it was a much better experience because I had her there to advocate for me. They were trying to get me to do Pitocin and she was like, no, her contractions are already very intense. So at this point, she was like, let her labor here and we see how that goes. And then if that doesn't work, then we'll start talking about a C-section. So having her there was so helpful and a completely different experience for for both me and my husband, because it was the same hospital that we had had our son. And this time around, we felt supported. We felt like we were being listened to and everything. And even when it came to the epidural, I requested an actual anesthesiologist to do it and not a student. And so I felt more empowered and I felt okay. No matter what the outcome was, I was going to be okay. And me and my husband even started talking about the possibility of having to do another C-section and everything. So we were already prepared mentally and emotionally for what would come. So um, we did end up having to do a C-section because my daughter, she decided she didn't want to tuck her head. She was trying to come out face first. (laughs) And so... (laughs) And so it was a much better experience in that when I had the C-section, I felt nothing. I didn't even realize they had pulled her out yet because that's how a C-section is supposed to be. Didn't feel anything. And so seeing her beautiful face and she was so chunky. She was eight pounds. Nicely done. Yes. And so it was just such a beautiful experience. Even though it was another C-section, I felt empowered. I felt good about it. And I I was okay with it. I was at peace with it because I got to be part of the decision-making process this time around. Yeah. I mean, what I'm hearing from these two stories is that communication is so critical mm-hmm. and the ability to be able to communicate and be heard It makes a huge difference. I I think even when you're telling the story and you talk about the midwife saying no to the Pitocin, I can physically feel how exciting that is. 
Yeah. Right. It's so nice to be able to say, actually, we're not going to do that. And you have the authority of someone who's watched your whole labor progress. So yeah, my entire pregnancy, everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So do they, they take your daughter out and do they put her on your chest or how does that all go? Yeah, they did. So this time around, I was able to hold her. And then in the recovery room, I immediately latched her on. We've had such an incredible breastfeeding journey. We're coming up on 12 months next month. And it's just been a completely different experience. That is awesome. And so in, in this postpartum period, do you also feel the depression and anxiety or that is not a part of it? No, I, I'm much more joyful. So no depression or anything like that. I was still seeing my therapist. I just made it a normal part of my routine to meet with her monthly and everything. But yeah, overall, it was a much better experience. That, that sounds awesome. And how old is your daughter? She's 11 months. Oh, so yeah. cute. <laughs> so that's awesome. That is a triumph, right? For you to figure out what you didn't like about the first one and to fix it for the second one. Yes, yes. Well, Andrea, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Andrea for sharing her story. I appreciate her honesty in retelling the parts that were hard to experience and I was inspired by the changes she made for the second delivery. One thing that seemed to contribute to her success was her mindset. She had a pretty broad definition of success before the birth took place and was able to appreciate the sum total of all the things that happened, including the expert help of her midwife. Thanks also to Dr. Amuta Anakaga for the work she's doing. She's talked a little bit about the future of Black maternal health, Because you're in a medical school, do you think showing medical students the mortality and morbidity statistics that differ by race will have an impact on how they practice medicine in the future? I think it does and it will. I researched here at a mother lab. It's the largest lab in the country that's training the next generation of clinicians, scholars, advocates, obstetric gynecologists, and we start with the data, right? Like here, is what's happening. Some people are not familiar with it. Some people are not abreast of what is um, happening and how the data really has implications for their practice. But when we show it to them, when we talk about the history of racism in the field of medicine, when we talk about how they are accountable as providers to make sure that their patients are receiving the best quality care, we talk about how they have a real obligation to do no harm and what that looks like in the delivery of their practice and their methods. And so I think a lot of them will be better clinicians for this extended kind of contextualized introduction into, yeah, the field of medicine is quite racist. And so it's hard to sit with that, right? Because on one level, you're thinking about it and you're like, I I got into this field to help people. I want to save lives. They come into it for all the right reasons. And then you think about it and they're just, it's really it, the, the direct lack of content related to anti-racism in medical education is actually quite astonishing. So you're taking all types of people from a variety of backgrounds, some of whom have never been in diverse communities. You're training them really well clinically, physiologically, but you're not giving them the social cultural on how to connect with their patient population. That's a real missed opportunity. Here at Tufts, as many other medical schools, we have a direct 
motivation and a direct commitment to being actively anti-racist. It's one of those things where you have to walk the talk and talk the walk. We, that's what we're doing. We have a curriculum that we're implementing with a lot of our medical students. We have an anti-racism council. We have so many initiatives, student-led, student-driven, to really hold ourselves accountable. As a school of medicine and um, part of my role as assistant dean is to be a good steward and to be a conduit for students, for faculty and for staff who are really working to push this issue forward and also to make sure that it's embedded within the entire infrastructure of the school. So, you know, it's work, but it's work that you do alongside great allies, great co-conspirators, um, amazing students of all backgrounds and just really pushing the needle forward. But for sure, the discipline of medicine has some work to do. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with friends. We'll be back next week with another inspiring story.